welcome back to the Australian Histories podcast. Today we're going to begin a series exploring what is still arguably Australia's greatest nation-building infrastructure project. Undertaken immediately after World War II, as the country was healing, it was designed to support the rebuilding and to set the country up for a secure and modern future. The Snowy Mountains Hydroelectric Scheme took nearly 30 years to complete, was an astounding engineering feat, and indeed remains one of the, quote, engineering wonders of the world, unquote. It created thousands of jobs and drove the development of increased homegrown engineering expertise for large civil projects in the future. Not without social and environmental costs, of course, it brought with it some amazing practical power and water supply developments and led the country in embracing the varied and valuable cultural influences from its international, often refugee, workforce recruited in the optimistic and welcoming post-war Australia. It's a great story, and all the drivers and outcomes deserve a bit of reflection. In today's first episode, we'll start by looking at the early ideas and the instigation of the project. Before I begin, though, I'd like to thank my two new patrons, Shane S. and B. Roberts, who've signed up to my Patreon account. Thank you so much for contributing to the future output of the Australian Histories podcast. Thanks also to Richie, who made a contribution again this month, and who also sent me an email with some really lovely news that had a quirky tie-in with the episode on the Sydney Harbour Bridge. So that was lovely to read. And I'll just discreetly say, congratulations, mate. I'm so glad you've all been enjoying the history so far, and I'm grateful for the material support. I've just finished my second year in production, so all the web and pod hosting invoices have recently arrived. I also noted a couple of lovely new reviews. Thanks for taking the time, and thanks also to those who recommend the show to their friends and family and share the links on your social media profiles. Those personal recommendations are so valuable in growing the podcast audience. It's much appreciated. Okay, so let's start now to find out why building a few dams and some hydroelectricity generators was such a big deal in 1949 Australia. If you've never heard of the Snowy Scheme, it really is an impressive project to look back on, and there are plenty of great stories to tell in the process. It's time to say goodbye to Ginnabine. It's been my home these 50 years of time. Now the mountains in their winter snow on the snowy river down below is whispering farewell to Ginnabine. And so farewell. There were two major drivers in post-war Australia that led to the creation of the Snowy Mountains Hydroelectric Scheme. The need for more irrigation water to the west of the ranges and the growing need for electricity. Here was a project that could deliver both. The scheme would divert and dam waters from a number of rivers near their source in the Australian Alps and creating miles of massive pipes through and across the rugged mountains they would build a number of above and underground electricity generating plants to utilize the water flow and deliver reliable electricity to victoria new south wales and the australian capital territory the monumental project would be a stunning feat of engineering and of patience <laughs> the plans expected to take nearly 30 years to complete a paper by Milner and Dunn presented to the Institution of Engineers Australian National Conference in 1989 reflected on the scheme's past, present and future. 
1989 being the 40-year anniversary of the project's commencement. They noted, quote, The scheme contains 15 large dams, 7 power stations, 2 pumping stations, 145 kilometres of tunnels, and a further 80 kilometres of aqueducts, constructed at a cost of $820 million. Imagine that sum being considered in the late 1940s, just as we were emerging from a costly war. I reckon they got a lot for their money, actually. And in today's terms, I'm thinking, no way would you get such a complex project built in such a difficult physical environment. Well, funded by the government in the first instance, but completed on time and within estimated costs. It's an amazing achievement. Of course, it was not without its problems and adverse outcomes in some areas, which we will look at later, but I think it's up there with the pyramids. <laughs> Is that too strong? <laughs> its electricity generation capacity, for any nerds out there who understand what these numbers mean, and that's not me, I'm afraid, was 3,740 megawatts. And for irrigation water, an average additional diversion to the interior of 1,130 gigalitres. They also noted that the construction set world records for tunnelling and was an impressive venture for its ability to keep the project moving without major industrial difficulties over its 25-year construction period, and that it stayed within budget over that long time. The scheme was instrumental in developing strong engineering expertise in Australia at a time when we had very limited capability. McHugh recalls talking to one engineer who was employed in the lead-up to construction, saying he was only one of 11 engineers to graduate from his university in that year. And keep in mind, we had far fewer universities overall at that time too. While there was some ongoing angst between the two state governments involved and the Commonwealth, as they all changed their stripes over the years, the project just kept on operating under the tightly defined and well-protected Snowy Mountains Scheme Authority. Its largely international and refugee workforce was celebrated as heralding in the beginning of multicultural Australia. This is quite amazing in itself, seeing as we were, only a couple of years prior, involved in open warfare with some of the nationalities that ended up working on the Snowy Scheme. I think it's so impressive. Faults and all. Certainly, it meant the inundation of three existing towns and 95,000 acres of pastoral land, but the towns were relocated and compensation and alternative land offered to the graziers. Reflecting on the shortcomings of the project, though, Apart from those stakeholders, other adverse outcomes were pretty much unthought of. The traditional owners were not consulted or their sacred sites considered, and the natural flow of the Snowy River itself was so badly reduced that the river and its surrounds were devastated over the following years. So there are many aspects to the project to reflect on, and we will certainly be looking a little more at some of the engineering, community, personal and social impacts of this scheme in the following episodes. The need for water for irrigation in such a dry country had long been a difficulty for farming. Most of the largely European stock and agricultural grains and crops generally performed best with reliable and abundant rain, so Australian cycles of drought and then inundating flood caused ongoing frustration for the farmers, and the government was keen to expand the viable land available for agriculture, if they could only just solve the water problem. The snowy mountains, with all that rain and snowmelt, seemed to have just what they all needed. 
The first Australians used the country and worked the land in a completely different way to the Europeans, encouraging the native grasses and seeds, the yams and other plants that would provide food directly for themselves, as well as fostering the health of the native animals, which would then also become a valuable food source. So their lifestyle was better adapted to the swings of drought and flood, and they moved around to take advantage of seasonal bounty. But the new agriculture was always crying out for solutions to the unpredictable Australian climate, and there had regularly been calls to divert existing rivers into the arid country. Never mind the cost. The Bradfield scheme had been proposed in 1938 to bring water to the inland of Queensland. And you may remember the name Bradfield, the engineer associated with the building of the Sydney Harbour Bridge. The Goldfields Water Supply Scheme, completed in 1903, was constructed to pipe water 530 kilometres, that's 330 miles, inland in Western Australia. It provided 23,000 kilolitres, or 5,100,000 imperial gallons, of drinking water per day to the Kalgoorlie Goldfields, and it continues to operate today. So the irrigation potential of the Snowy Scheme was a massive attraction. But the electricity generation was also of great importance, particularly to reduce the incidence of blackouts in New South Wales. Post-war Australia was in need of an infrastructure boost, those nation-building projects that would set the country up and fuel the post-war boom. The Sydney Harbour Bridge had seen New South Wales in to the Second World War, and the Snowy Hydro Scheme would boost the country out of it and into the modern era. In Australia, when you think of hydroelectricity, your mind turns to Tasmania first. They were the kings of hydro. Indeed, they grew into complete megalomaniacs of hydro building. They couldn't see a river without salivating over damming it. Sure, they've got lots of rivers, and in years past a relentless wet climate, but hydro and dam building is not without destruction of other important public and natural assets and should not be seen as suitable for every potential opportunity, guys. <laughs> Wiki states that Hydro Tasmania currently operates 30 hydroelectric and one gas-powered station and is a joint owner in three wind farms. On my last visit to Tasmania, I happened to stumble across the Wadamana Power Station Museum, right in the heart of the state. It was brilliant to see. Opening in 1916 and operating until the 1960s, it looked like they'd just walked out on the last day and left all the old desks, the equipment, the tools behind. I would highly recommend a visit there one day, if you're an engineering fan. It's just amazing. Returning now to the snowy, and for our international listeners, the eastern side of the mainland of Australia has a north-south mountain range known as the Great Dividing Range running from eastern Victoria, 3,500 kilometres north to the top of Queensland. It serves as a bit of a barrier to moisture from the east coast, and the western side of the range is much more arid. The southern part, with the highest peaks around the Victoria-New South Wales border and stretching into the Australian Capital Territory, is known as the Australian Alps. Now, those of you familiar with the European Alps, or the Himalayas, <laughs> please try to stop giggling. Yes, our Alps are more like a high plateau, with the odd mountain just peaking above the rest, such as Australia's majestic highest peak, Mount Kosciuszko, at a lofty 2,228 metres high. That's 7,310 feet. And for the intrepid mountain climbing types, 
uh, well, there's a chairlifter within a few kilometres of that peak. <laughs> Maybe make this one the first on your climb to the highest peaks in every country challenge. Or perhaps leave it till last. You can probably still manage it in your late 90s. <laughs> you might even get a senior's discount on the chairlift ride. <laughs> yeah, well, okay, we've got big dingo fences. We've got a massive barrier reef, a giant rock in the dead heart, and an impressively wide Nullarbor plain. So we don't need to feel defensive about our modest mountain peak. But in a largely desert country, our Alps are a stunning, beautiful and special part of our land. Okay, so pretty much nowhere now has snow cover all year round, but we do get some pretty fierce winters up there, and snow can fall on occasion even in summer. We've even got some ski fields that operate across the winter months. Well, for now anyway, and snow aside, much of the area consists of rugged and beautiful wilderness, dotted with resorts and high country communities. It's not all about the surf and sun here, you know. <laughs> Though the Alps are a substantial distance from the main population centres of Sydney and Melbourne in the southeast, with their reliable snow and rainfall, you can see why the idea of harnessing this area for hydrogeneration and irrigation was attractive. There are many helpful resources available on the history of the snowy, but the one I loved best and found very illuminating was a book written by Siobhan McHugh called The Snowy, A History. A writer, academic and oral historian, Siobhan gathered so many great stories and first-hand insights into the development and building of the Snowy that the book she wrote using all that information is an absolute gem, and I highly recommend it. Before we turn to the project itself, though, let's have a look at the Australian Alps before the European settlers began moving in. The Australian Alps National Park website tells us that the Alps have a complex geological history spanning 520 million years, with a mix of young and old rocks in its makeup. While there are elements of volcanic basalt from very early periods, they also consist of sedimentary rocks pushed up from a very ancient ocean floor. The Australian range was not formed, as many other Alps were, by continents colliding and pushing and crinkling upwards as they're forced together over millennia, but rather our Alps are the result of a splitting apart of the supercontinent Gondwana about 160 million years ago. It was around this time that Zealandia began feeling, oh, it wasn't us, it was them, they just needed more space. No hard feelings. <laughs> and Zealandia left the party with the Pacific Plate. <laughs> As Zealandia section moved away, and the crust underneath what is now the Great Dividing Range was stretched outwards and became thinner, it allowed the deep, superheated magma underneath to push closer to the surface, lifting that land into a range about two kilometres high. The water then came through as the section completely broke away and eastern Australia was left with a narrow landmass stretching out from those ranges, forming our east coast. Glaciers and weathering continued the process, carving deep valleys into the uplifted plateau, exposing the stone and terrain we see today in the high plains and mountains. The ecosystems around the Alps vary according to the altitude, the vegetation and fauna adapted to each environment. This includes the lower elevations, often grassy woodlands, the montane, usually wetter and more dense forest and bush, often thick with tall alpine and mountain ash. The subalpine zone usually starts about 1500 metres, where the tall trees cease and the shorter, gnarled snow gums appear, with an understory there of low shrubs, herbs and grasses. 
In the alpine zone at the top, the summer temperatures, in the old days at least, reaching a mean of only 10 degrees Celsius. It generally consists of heath and grassland, herb fields and bog. These high plain environments are acutely sensitive to disturbance and easily damaged by the introduced species, particularly the hard-hooved animals. The vegetation of the Australian Alps is unique and recognised by UNESCO, some areas listed as, quote, World Biosphere Reserve, unquote, and worthy of protection. Though sadly, there are many species of the Australian alpine plants and animals currently under threat, particularly from the more frequent and high-intensity fires that we can now expect to continue. The Alps National Parks remind us that, quote, the diversity of vegetation in the Australian Alps provides habitats for a wide range of animals, many of which are found nowhere else in the world, like the only marsupial species which stores food or the insect which changes colour to reflect or absorb heat as a way of regulating its body temperature. More than 40 species of native mammals, 200 bird species, 30 reptile species, 15 amphibian, 14 native fish and many types of invertebrates call the Australian Alps their home, unquote. The rare leadbeater's possum, for example, is only found in the old-growth forests of mountain and alpine ash in the southern eastern ranges. And the mountain pygmy possum is the only mammal who lives exclusively in the alpine and subalpine levels. Wombats, wallabies, kangaroos and echidnas are common in the lower levels, some even occasionally venturing into the alpine zones as do bats and a vast array of birds, from the tiny robins and wrens to the larger currawong and cockatoos. My fave, though, in the lower ranges, are the superb lyrebirds. It's so wonderful to be walking through those forests and hear the lyrebird practising his routine of birdsong covers. <laughs> There are the usual array of southeastern snakes and lizards common in the lower terrain, with some even found in the bogs and subalpine woodlands on the plateau. But there are some truly special frogs in the Alps, found only there and sadly much reduced in number and at risk of extinction, such as the bauble frog and the spectacular corroboree frog. I'll put a picture of him on the website. The native fish are now also rare and largely restricted to areas that the introduced trout cannot reach. Native crayfish and yabbies can also be found, but of the many alpine adapted insects across the Alps, the most iconic is probably the large, plump, grey-brown bogong moth. Quote, These moths migrate from the lowlands where they breed and feed to the high country in the early summer. There they cluster in rock crevices and caves and remain dormant over summer to escape the scorching heat. This is called aestivation. That's my new word for this episode. Or summer hibernation. It's said at dusk during migration, the air can vibrate with the wing beats of hundreds of thousands of moths that fill the air in a moving black mass. Insect-eating animals, such as the mountain pygmy possum, make the most of this rich food source and build up fat reserves for the oncoming winter period, unquote. It's a sad thing to note, though, that in the last few years the numbers of insects, and the bogong moth in particular, have plummeted, 
and this then leads to a more precarious times for the possums and other creatures that rely on them as a crucial food source. These bogong moths in particular were also an important food source for the local and visiting indigenous groups who often travelled into the high country, and they were a prized food source for the ceremonial and corroboree feasts held by the different groups meeting there. Various Aboriginal language groups were the custodians of the Alps over tens of thousands of years. Their associated stories and cultural practices passed on through countless generations. More recently, archaeological evidence, including weapons, tools, and camp oven remnants found so far, dates occupation there back at least 21,000 years. There are burial sites, artwork, ceremonial grounds, and from the more recent few hundred years, scarring on trees from bark extraction and decoration or signage throughout the areas. Clearly the Alps contained places with deep and meaningful cultural and spiritual significance. Quote, oral tradition and physical evidence show there was a thriving society that incorporated sophisticated exchange patterns and rich social and ceremonial lives across the Alps, unquote. Across the vast area, there were many different groups taking advantage of the abundant resources in the warmer months. According to the ATSIS map of Indigenous Australia, the group whose country covers the largest snowy mountains area in the Alps was the Ngarigo, or Bidawal though other mobs from surrounding areas also had a relationship with parts of the Alps, such as the neighbouring Jaitmatang, Nungawal and Wiradjuri peoples. I recently read a book called On Track, Searching Out the Bundian Way. The author John Blay recounts the process of working with the Eden Local Aboriginal Land Council in rediscovering and walking the old indigenous walking trails covering about 300 kilometres between Eden on the coast up to Mount Kosciuszko. There is a great desire to reconstruct this walking path from sea to summit and allow walkers the opportunity to reflect on the ancient way of life there. It was fascinating to hear that they had uncovered ancient shell middens way up in the mountains miles from the coast. The shellfish no doubt brought in by the coastal people, remnants of regular feasts over thousands of years, supporting the oral stories of tribes bringing their local food and goods in to share as part of the summer gatherings. I'll place a link to a recording of them talking about the Bundian Way rediscovery process on the Australian Histories podcast webpage. These tracks were later shown to the European explorers and settlers as they arrived, aiding their access to the attractive high plain pastures. It's thought some of the roads running through the Monaro Plains follow sections of those ancient trackways. Many of the place names across the Alps derive from Aboriginal languages, including Canberra, Tidbinbilla, Breadbow, Tumut, Jungungal, Bogong, Kuma, Jindabyne, Talingbo, and many more. But of course, the sorry story we recount in many episodes also affected the Indigenous peoples around the Alps. Gold seekers came in first, from the north and the south, then also well-known explorers such as Streslecki, who named Mount Kosciuszko in 1840, followed then by numerous incomers wanting to settle and farm exclusively. Though the local indigenous peoples were instrumental in opening up the country for the new arrivals by guiding them and showing them the ancient pathways through the seemingly inhospitable country to the high plains and the grassland, they could not have known initially how detrimental the newcomers would be to their lifestyle in the end. Though indigenous populations were greatly reduced then and much cultural knowledge lost, many descendants from that period are now researching and resurrecting important cultural knowledge and ceremonial song and storylines across the region, such as rediscovering the Bundian Way tracks. 
More recently, various working groups of the traditional owners and the Australian Alpine National Parks have been consulting to identify sites of particular heritage value and cultural significance. So, while at the time of the construction of the Snowy Hydro Scheme, very little knowledge or attention was paid to this element of community consultation, we can hope that in the future this will be high on the list of considerations for developments and activities proposed in the future. As the Second World War drew to a close, the politicians turned their thoughts to rebuilding the economy and the society, to nation-building on a grand scale. Prime Minister Ben Chifley was still in charge, and he was one who would entertain visionary ideas. McHugh reminds us that the previous 60 years had seen a number of proposals to solve the water problem, but it was Chifley's Minister for Works and Housing, Nelson Lemon, that promoted and actually enabled the successful project. Trave Olsen, a Norwegian engineer working for the then Victorian Electricity Commission, had proposed the most recent and attractive plan, which would divert the snowy waters inland via trans-mountain tunnels for irrigation while generating electricity on the way down. Lemon got excited. He ordered a detailed investigation, complete with aerial and preliminary ground surveys. McHugh quotes him saying, It looked too good to be true. The amount of electricity we'd get was equal to one-third the amount of coal we dug in Australia. Well, that's a good contribution to the nation, unquote. And little did he know how good that was, saving all that potential coal use in the days before the clear evidence linking the burning of coal to climate change was well known. The Snowy Mountains Hydroelectric Power Act No. 25 was passed by Parliament in July of 1949. Of course, there had been a spectacular amount of wrangling to bring that act to a successful vote. First of all, there was the problem of getting New South Wales and Victoria to cooperate, an almost impossible task on a good day. <laughs> Lemon recalled that at the state-federal conference to discuss the scheme, quote, it became pretty clear we were going to have trouble with New South Wales. New South Wales thinks it's the head of Australia, unquote. <laughs> Lemon was a Western Australian himself, so not a Victorian having a whinge. But still, the realisation they were unlikely to get the states playing nicely for the quarter century it would take to build such a colossal undertaking prompted Lemon to suggest it could only succeed if under the control of the federal government. Now, constitutionally, this was almost impossible. The states have constitutional responsibility for both power production and for water and irrigation. We see this difficult dynamic still playing out in the arrangements over the water allocations on the Murray-Darling, across four states, for example. And they also had the powers required for compulsory acquisition of the houses and land required in the project areas. But Lemon was able to envisage a way through. He would use the Commonwealth powers reserved for defence, if he could make a good enough argument about the pressing need for safe, secure power provision to a country just emerging from a recent threat of war on their soil and to assure a dependable supply of water to enable the development of secure, ongoing food production for the country, they could set up the project authority to manage it and fund it federally. So he took it to Chifley, suggesting they claim the whole project be promoted under the Defence Act allowing them to take over the necessary elements from state control in the snowy. He quotes Chifley as saying, 
What? Your name's Nelson Lemon, not Ned Kelly. You can't do that, unquote. But Lemon maintained they could argue strongly for the need. They had only a few short years before had enemy submarines right inside Sydney Harbour. And he suggested, with the even newer weapons underway, all the existing power stations along the coast were prime targets. Quote, they could blow all your damned electricity out in one night shooting, unquote. Chifley considered that argument worth a try. Quote, if you can get Evett to agree with it, and if there's a case he'll have to fight it in the High Court, if you can get Evett to agree, I'll go all the way with you, unquote. So, it was game on. Now he had to win Evett over. Herbert Doc Evett was the Attorney General and Minister for External Affairs and an impressive and formidable constitutional lawyer. But how was he to get him excited about this massive engineering project? Hmm. Lemon decided the best tactic was to play to his ego and give him the opportunity to best a colleague he was feuding with. <laughs> Deadman was a past Minister for Defence and currently the Minister for Post-War Construction so he was probably one Lemon should have got on side as well. But there was no love lost between Deadman and Evett. Lemon told McHugh, quote, Him and Evett didn't like each other. I got Evett in a good mood, and I told him the story. And I says, Of course, Jack Deadman said you can't use the Defence Act for things like this. And Evett responded, What does he know about it? <laughs> Unquote. Lemon had successfully recruited Evett as the scheme's constitutional warrior. Chifley then considered the estimated electricity output from these generators far from the capitals and he agreed the scheme could be fully funded by the Commonwealth under the same defence arguments. But Lemon still had the hurdle of winning the people over. Only the states could acquire the land needed and they would not want the grief of a community-based fight and many existing properties and towns would need to be sacrificed. So Lemon was determined to, quote, keep the cockies happy Unquote, by offering generous compensation and excellent terms on alternative land and by moving the affected towns and services wholesale to above the new water lines. Sadly, though they knew that the flows from some rivers would afterwards alter, the wider long-term environmental damage was not fully considered, or rather was considered to be a cost worth the major benefits of the scheme. We'll talk a little about that in the final episodes perhaps. He was certain that once the electricity began being generated, the public would all be in favour and that optimistic goodwill would need to be maintained over many years. But Lemon felt he could win the people over. All that was left now was to persuade the Parliament to pass the Act. Various legal opinions came through from the government solicitors indicating their restrained agreement that Chifley could set up the authority and undertake the scheme under the Federal Defence Provisions and the appropriate bills were drafted. Quote, the authority is empowered to supply such electricity in the first instance for defence purposes and to the Australian Capital Territory and to dispose of any surplus in bulk to any state or state authorities. Unquote. So, the Snowy Mountains Hydroelectric Power Act passed in July of 1949, allowing the Snowy Mountains Hydroelectric Authority to come into being on August 1st. Lemon was determined to get the show on the road, having recruited William Hudson to oversee construction of, quote, the largest works undertaking ever conceived in the history of our country, unquote. 
Hudson was actually a New Zealander who'd come to Australia in 1928 to work as a civil engineer for the New South Wales Department of Public Works and then for the Sydney Metropolitan Water Sewerage and Drainage Board. He rose there to take charge of the Nepean Dam construction and later he moved to Scotland where Alexander Gibbon Partners offered him the post of engineer in charge of construction of the Galway Hydroelectric Scheme built between 1930 and 36 in a remote area of Scotland. Though at the time it was the largest project of its kind in Britain, generating 106 megawatts from a network of dams and five generation plants, the Galway hydro construction Hudson oversaw would be dwarfed by the size and complexity of the snowy scheme. But at least it had given him the valuable experience in tackling this kind of complex construction. He returned to the Water Board of New South Wales, where he oversaw the Warranora Dam project, supplying drinking water to Sydney, and afterwards was promoted to become the board's engineer-in-chief. McHugh tells the story of his recruitment from there to the Snowy Authority. Apparently a colleague of Hudson's mentioned that Lemon was still looking for the right man for the Snowy job, and as he was expecting to meet another colleague, the chairman of the Public Service Board, at a cricket match, he noted down Hudson's past work details on the back of an envelope, intending to suggest him for the role. And his scribblings did actually make their way from his Public Service Board mate to Lemon's desk. The Scottish Hydro Project caught his eye. No ten-page resume, cover letter and personality test for Hudson. Lemon was particularly impressed by his ability to keep such a large and complex project to the nominated time frame and cost estimates. He'd constructed the dam in New South Wales and his reputation there was already good. But Lemon would have to confirm that Hudson could work with the local unions and maintain the respect of his workforce. McHugh reports Lemon saying, quote, So I rang up the union blokes. Hudson, we know him well. Well, what's he like? Ah, he likes his pound of flesh, a bit of a slave driver. Oh, that's good, but I'm thinking of him for a pretty big job, lots of contact with the unions. Ah, he says, he'll listen to you. He won't be some kind of tin pot boss. If we've got any problems, he'll hear the story. He's good, unquote. So, with that positive advice, Lemon called Hudson in for a chat. But on arrival, Hudson apparently looked a bit stooped and not too well. Lemon thought he was unlikely to be robust enough for the massive task ahead, despite his great potential. And in one of those 1940s straightforward conversations, Lemon told him he liked his credentials, but he just looked too fragile to take on the task. Hudson then explained he had a grumbling appendix, but he didn't want to miss the appointment. (laughs) So Lemon gave him the job, on the condition that he had his appendix out in the coming days. And so he did. So it's not only Antarctica that discourages those with a dicky appendix. Hydroelectric authorities too, apparently. (laughs) So that's how you get your top jobs in the old days, with a scribble on an envelope. But as it turned out, he was indeed exactly the right man for the job. But first, his appointment had to be approved by the government. Many in Cabinet were impressed by Lemon's choice. But Deadman, still smarting no doubt from being excluded from controlling the scheme himself, having previously been the Defence Minister, was not keen to let Lemon's choice sail through. He reminded them all that Cabinet required three names to be submitted. So Lemon withdrew his nomination and resubmitted it with three names. Hudson, Hudson and Hudson. (laughs) 
the nomination was carried. So, with Hudson at the helm of the Snowy River Hydroelectric Authority, the early days of planning and surveying and gathering an appropriate workforce began in earnest. We will begin looking at that process in the next episode, and it's quite fascinating. Australia sought advice on the massive project from many countries and was able to recruit workers with the help of the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration, then processing refugees and finding post-war displaced persons a new start in life. Australia was looking for those with appropriate qualifications or experience that could be helpful in building the snowy, and many people would sign up in the hope of finding a new and better life far away from the ravages of Europe. So join me next time to discuss the Snowy Hydro workforce and the start of construction. Before we finish up, I'm going to recommend a really wonderful podcast called The History Cache. And this time, I'm going to let the host, Kristen, tell you all about it herself. Have you ever wondered how to make a shrunken head? Or why there was a cat floating up in space in 1963? Or just what it takes for a monkey to become an astronaut? Did you know that a snarky swearing parrot ruined Andrew Jackson's funeral? And that a crew of 28 explorers drifted lost on the ice floes of Antarctica for two years during World War I? And why does fruitcake exist? If you want to excavate through the deepest primordial interiors of the human experience, reach back into time and find the stories that connect all of us to a place where real history is woven with storytelling that brings the past back to life, then come visit the History Cache podcast for some exhaustively researched historical narrative that just might inspire you to make your own history. That's Cache spelled C-A-C-H-E. It's history better than fiction. A podcast crafted for the most curious of minds. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, I'll put the link to that podcast on the Australian Histories podcast webpage. And the references used in this episode will be there also, along with other images and links that might be of interest. I've been celebrating the second anniversary of the show this month, and I still have more great stories lined up in my ideas file, so I don't think we'll have any trouble filling up this third year. Have a look at the second anniversary post on the Australian Histories podcast webpage. I've noted the podcasts I've been recommending over this last year, and I've put some links to my very favourite episodes, in case you're looking for more to listen to. And do keep recommending this podcast to others if you can. I'm hoping to double the listening community over this coming year. Do you think we can do it? The biggest growth is coming from the Spotify platform, so I'd love to keep reaching people there. It's lovely to think of all the folks out there enjoying the things that I love learning about too. So thanks for listening. Have a safe and happy few weeks, and I'll talk to you next month. Cheers. Cheers.